Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Forma podcast from the Circe Institute Podcast Network a podcast about the intersection of classical thoughts and contemporary culture. Forma podcast is the audio companion to Forma Journal. I'm Heidi White. In this episode, I have a conversation with Brian Brown about the Christian imagination and sacred and common art. Brian Brown is the founder and director of the Anselm Society, a nonprofit organization in Colorado Springs dedicated to a renaissance of the Christian imagination. If you're not sure what that entails, hang in there. Brian and I discuss it at length in our conversation. The Anselm Society fosters a renaissance of the Christian imagination on a local and a national level by a reintegration of the church and the arts. We'll be talking a great deal about the work of the Anselm Society in the realm of arts, faith, and imagination in the next 30 minutes or so as we hear from Brian. But that's not all there is to Brian. A graduate of Princeton University, Brian is also the director of marketing at the Colson Center, where he handles strategy, infrastructure, and brand management. He is a wizard in the nonprofit world. Uh, Brian is a fan of T.S. Eliot, Anthony Esselin, and Jane Austen, which I affirm as fantastic choices. He lives in Colorado Springs with his wife, Christina, and their two kids, Edith and Edmund. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the remarkable Brian Brown. Hi, Brian. How are you doing? I am doing well. Oh, thank you so much for being here. This yeah, conversation is really fun for me, just delightful because uh, for you listeners, Brian and I are personal friends and professional collaborators. So it's really fun to have a conversation with you uh, over here on Forma, Brian. So I'm just, I'm so glad you're here. My pleasure. Let's dive in. All right. So Brian, you and I share a mutual love of art and the humanities and great books and good food and conversation about faith and art. So one thing I do know about you, Brian, is that you have a love, I would even say a zeal for the Christian imagination, for the unity of art and faith in the life of the church. So tell us what sparked your zeal for the topic of imagination, specifically Christian imagination? It's one of those things where uh, you can you can look back at long stretches of your life and uh, at any given point, uh, you, you couldn't see that particular piece adding up to what it ends up adding up to. But uh, here we are. I mean, I was raised with a great uh, love of books. We just, we read all the time growing up, um, loved art history, struggled through music, uh, and uh, over the course of a number of different touch points in my early 20s, um, I started to connect that love of great stories, that love of um, beautiful buildings. I went to Princeton and was, was all of a sudden living in a castle. Uh, essentially. Um, 
And, and eventually I started to notice, well, thing that's missing in all of this, or rather the one place in my life where all of this is missing, uh, the one place where Lord of the Rings doesn't seem to be allowed, uh, is church. Huh. And the one thing, the one place where all of the things that move me the most, um, other than explicitly spiritual things, is church. Hmm. And uh, I wrote some pretty funny... Um, so I majored in political theory and I wrote some pretty funny dialogues actually uh, in the summer after college where I was kind of wrestling through this and wrestling through um, the, uh, the fun twists on um, sacramental theology that I had experienced where the sacraments were in all the wrong places and um, where do where does praise music fit into all of this. And <laughs> the next thing I knew, uh, I, I was encountering... Um, uh, Eastern Rite Catholicism, Anglicanism, <laughs> and well, oh my gosh, all these people don't seem to think they have to check their imaginations at the door. Huh. Um, and it was a bit, and then I was, I was probably 22 at this point. Um, and so it's been, it's been well over a decade uh, of, of journeying since then. But eventually I noticed in Colorado Springs, where I have lived for a decade now, uh, that I was not the only one that felt that way. Right. Right. How, so, okay. So political theory, this is, this is something I did not know about you. Um, you went to Princeton and I also know that you have a connection with John Jay Institute, a very personal connection actually. Uh, uh, but I didn't know that you were a political theory major. How did you go from politics to, I mean, nonprofit? We haven't quite gotten there yet, what you're doing now, but how did that jump happen? Uh, well, I had gone into college. Um, I was a Civil War buff in high school. And <laughs> I had gone to college going, oh, James McPherson is at, is at Princeton. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to study history. Uh-huh. Uh, and then the more I encountered um, college-level history, uh, at least U.S. history, um, the more I encountered it as a, as a technical subject, as historiography, hmm. um, and less as um, a narrative, less as storytelling. Um, And then I took an ancient and medieval political theory course, and I realized, well, this is the way I'm used to encountering history. Hmm. Um, This is ideas. This is, is, there's some notion in this class that the events of history, the ideas of dead people uh, have some significance. And yeah, one thing led to another, and next thing I knew, I was hanging out with a bunch of nerds around <laughs> homes of Plato and Aristotle. Uh, I love that. So to go back then, let's let's connect this. I'm oh yeah, I only told the first half of the story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I derailed you there, so that was that was my fault. But to take that, what you just said is so important. The idea of. Um, of history and the historical narrative, the political narrative being part of a story, an ongoing unfolding tradition and story. I mean, that, that takes, I mean, to bring it full circle, that takes imagination, right? People like you and me, people like our listeners who don't see these as isolated studies or subjects. I'm doing that with air quotes, you know, subjects that you study in school, but something that, belongs together that is the story of creation is imagination the link then for you between those things um to some extent i think um on some level imagination is is a piece of everything Hmm. uh, rather than its own thing oh please riff on that tell (laughs) what do you mean by that well um there's well we've lived with this weird dichotomy between um reason and 
uh, emotion or the passions. Agreed. Uh, the Greeks. Um, yeah. And on and off since then. Um, and, and there have been periods basically between um, the fall of the Roman Empire and um, the Enlightenment. There have been periods where the church has has been less enthusiastic about the idea that those two things are at opposite ends of a, a spectrum. Um, but, but generally speaking, there's this mental narrative in, in most people's minds. Okay. You've got logic over here, uh, the left brain over here, you've got the right brain over here and you basically have left brained and right brain people. You have people that are very sort of artsy and emotional and you have people that are very cold and rational. And, uh, you might even go into real gender stereotypes and go, well, there are men over here and women over here. Um, and, and it gets, it's, it's, it's so, it's, it's bizarre. It's some, uh, it's hilarious reading some of the early philosophers thinking through this and even worse reading some of the enlightenment thinkers uh, thinking through this. They, they just want so badly to break things up into categories huh. so that they can wrap their minds around them and make it make sense. But you read um, some of the more nuanced thought of, say, Aristotle, and then you read uh, especially some of the uh, early medieval uh, Christian writers, mm-hmm. uh, and you start to notice things that, frankly, uh, coincide very strongly with what modern cognitive science tells us about how the brain works, which is that you're not either rational or emotional. Emotions are in fact part of how you are rational, part of how you perceive uh, the world. It's not enough to go to be able to reason. Well, I mean, one example that I often use is that um, if you're outside a burning building and you know for a fact there's someone inside do you want to be the kind of person that can reason your way to the logical conclusion that yes, morally one ought to go in and save someone? Hmm. Or do you want to be the kind of person whose emotions, whose imagination, the connection between reason and emotion uh, has been so well formed over time that you don't stop to think about running into the house to save somebody? Right. Right. Huh. I think that that is great. And so with your work with Anselm Society, which I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that um, and, and, you know, take this opportunity to do so. Is that what you just said about the burning building, the logical connections that we make? Um, is To what extent is that the problem that you're identifying in your work with the Anselm Society? Um, and how do we address that? Um, it's a thorny question and I, yeah. and I find it frankly very difficult to answer without going into a lot of uh, overgeneralizations mm-hmm. about either particular um, denominations, theological underpinnings or uh, different things about church history. Um, but broadly speaking, um, just to put it in personal terms, um, my experience with Christianity prior to a certain point in my adult life um, was that you had churches that were either uh, into theology, mm. uh, by which they meant this very dry, um, doctrinal, propositional thing. I remember being as a as a ten year old, I think, uh, just bored to tears by some sixty minute sermons that were, I mean, would have been, I'm sure, absolutely fascinating for a room full of people with PhDs. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, you have churches that, that are, that so devalue that side of Christianity, uh, that, that emotion is almost, um, confused with the movement of the Holy Spirit. 
mm. uh, where you've the, the the way to God is just this process of blindly feeling in the dark and emotion is the key. Right. There's that dichotomy that we talked about earlier that mm-hmm. you addressed, right? And in, and in between, you've got, um, frankly, most of church history, the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, the different iterations of the Catholic Church, um, most of the early Protestant reformers, the Anglicans, the Lutherans, uh, you've, you, you end up with uh, even the Calvinists to some extent. And, 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 and in all of these traditions, you see something very different. You see uh, a, a, an approach that very deeply values, uh, as my pastor likes to put it, um, understanding the character of the one we love the most, hmm. i.e. theology. Right. But that understands that it's not simply um, an, uh, an intellectual pursuit, a life of the mind sort of thing. Um, it's a deeply... Uh, personal sort of thing. And it's not taught just through good formal uh, pedagogy. Right. Repetition through habit, rhythm, um, the the forming of the imagination, the forming of the emotions surrounding you with uh, incredible stories surrounding you with art and architecture uh, that tells you every minute of the time that you're encountering it, uh, who you are and whose you are. Right. So it's this, it's this meeting Mm. of, uh, objective truth with the means that any human needs to uh, absorb that objective truth. Mm-hmm. That makes me think of Acts 17, um, the, uh, the sermon on Mars Hill that Paul gives mm-hmm. when he, I mean, it's just, it's a incredibly powerful sermon, the whole thing. And he, he does reference the pagan philosophers in that sermon. And he says uh, that we feel our way to God. And that's a bad translation of the Greek, but it's a close translation in some ways. And so can you address that? I mean, not necessarily in the context of Acts 17, but that idea of, um, of, of feeling your way to God, how, 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 do, how do you think that we experience that as Christians? Um, well, now you're asking me questions about my pay grade on some level. Sure, mine um, too. So I guess I'm asking <laughs> to speculate or even sure. what, um, if you had a better translation or idea of what that, but what you just said about like that unity between the rational and the emotional, that there's not a dichotomy. There's something connecting those two. What is that space between, I guess, is what I'm asking. And how do we access that? Well, I mean, C.S. Lewis uh, use, uses the, has this line about how uh, reason is the organ of truth and imagination is the organ of meaning. Oh, that's uh, good. You and I had a conversation recently where I think I, I, I said something to the effect of, um, you can learn all of the objective facts, all of the scientific facts, all of the moral truths in the world. Um, but the question is always, so What? Right. And imagination is the so what? It's the, 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 it's not this sort of separate thing within your brain that you can point to, oh, it's in the left lobe or, you know, whatever. Uh, but, but, uh, it's, it's how you figure out what matters. Hmm. Um, it's the, the combination of the different, um, parts of the way your mind works that, that communicate to you, uh, revulsion at one thing and inexplicable excitement at another. Right. And it can be malformed. Um, and so the notion of feeling your way to God, um, uh, I, I think there's something 
I, I do think you're right that there's relevance, uh, that, that line, that idea, there's relevance to the idea of the imagination. Right. Um, but it's not this sort of blind groping. And because uh, I think that the, the challenge with, the, with just the phrase in isolation, feeling your way to God, is that sure. if you're in certain traditions, there's, a, there's the risk of um, basically, if I don't feel close to God in this moment, uh, there must be something spiritually wrong with me. Yes, yes. And many people have made that mistake over the years, theologically, that 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 means some kind of emotional connection to God, which certainly includes an emotional connection to God and also a rational connection to God. But there's something I really like that kind of groping idea um, that while we are here on earth, we live in a mystery. There are things that are hidden that are veiled. Um but yet we long for those things. We still long to go beyond the veil. And when we, you know, a, a lot of the way that we attempt to do that is through worship, the, through the, the liturgies of worship in our worship traditions, and also through creating art. Right. right. Well, I mean, in the, in the, in the church, in the Christian existence, uh, we are living in two worlds. Right. Simultaneously. Uh, there's a theological idea of the already and the not yet. The kingdom of God is here and is coming. Uh, and they're, they're, they're both true and you have to hold them in tension because that's your life. Mm. That is your life. Right. You, you know these things to be true and you may at different points in your life uh, feel them more or less strongly to be true about uh, the, the kingdom of God and the fact that there is more to it than you can see. You have this access on some level uh, to mysteries that are invisible to the naked eye, but that are more real than the things you can see with the naked eye. On the other hand, you have five senses and that is how you relate to everything around you. And that's how you derive your, your, the vast majority of your reality. So if we have this version of a faith that has, um, that's just intensely invisible. I mean, I grew up in a church where they had one stained glass window, but it was just squares, right? Um, you know, no imagery whatsoever. Um, and, and, and there was just this implicit idea. I don't even know if I was ever actually taught this. I don't even know if anyone in the church formally believed this necessarily, but the architecture and the assumptions within it taught me that absolutely everything about what really matters, mm. uh, it basically lives in your mind because it cannot be seen. Right. It's behind the veil and that's where it stays. And you just, mm-hmm. we just live here and accept that. Right. So at the Anselm Society, uh, we talk a lot um, about fostering a renaissance of the Christian imagination. Will you uh, give us some insight? What do you mean by that phrase, a renaissance of the Christian imagination? And how does that connect with what we've been talking about so far? Well, first of all, we started the Anselm Society um, in 2013. And um, we, we put a couple of lectures on and we had these lectures and um, we had um, Donna Williams and Michael Ward and uh, Malcolm Guide and Peter Lighthart and still not sure how we got some of those people right out of the gate, but we did. <laughs> and, and, um, and people came out of the woodwork. I mean, we lived in, in Colorado Springs, which is, is known as the evangelical Mecca to some and the home of brain dead Christianity to others, huh. Huh. Um, depending on your perspective. And, um, and 
there were a lot of people who felt that they didn't uh, didn't fit in, and they said, "I thought I was the only one." Mm-hmm. And so we just sort of kept building things to meet the needs of the people right in front of us. There was never this this grand master vision. I didn't just wake up one morning with this plan, and 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 that's hard for me to admit because I'm a planner. My goodness. <laughs> Um, uh, I, I love strategizing things and looking Uh years down the road and figuring out every little step that's going to get us there. (laughs) I know that about you. That's true. (laughs) You're great at that. You own that. (laughs) And, 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 and at some point, some of that intentionality, uh, did, did start working its way into the story, but initially it was just, Oh, well, they liked that lecture. Hmm. Uh, Well, which, which lecture should we do next? And then eventually it was, well, gosh, it's six hours after the lecture ended and they're still here. It's 1am. I mean, we got to lock up the church. Um, what are we going to do with these people? They still want to talk. Um, so we started an arts guild where, where artists, practicing artists could connect with each other. Um, and what this all added up to over time, uh, unlike a lot of similar Christian imagination type organizations, um, we were born out of a church and we were very quickly supported by churches institutionally. Um, and I'm, I feel incredibly fortunate that that was the journey that we took. That was the path that we followed uh, because it's what landed us in the space that we're in, where the thing that we think we can contribute to the larger picture of a renaissance of the Christian imagination is not simply um, artists in community. It's not simply um, we need a few more Christian paintings or gosh, those Christian movies are really terrible. We should make some better ones. <laughs> um, although all of those things are also true. true. Um, but uh, it, it was, it was something where there was this, this felt um, need, this acknowledgement from essentially both sides of a proverbial aisle. The, the artists who often felt burned by the church or at best at the fringes of the church. And then on the other hand, church leaders who really never get up in the morning wondering, hmm, how can I ruin someone's creative dreams today? <laughs> uh, and, 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 you know, the, the pastors in our churches just kind of throw up their hands like, where are these people coming from? I've never experience this sort of horrible experience, but it's, but it's real and they do experience. Uh, so we landed in this place where, uh, this is the connection we're trying to make the, Mm. the the bringing back together of two things that have been together since the beginning of the church, since long before Christ, Mm. uh, the, the, I mean, what are the Psalms? They're, they're, they're not just, David and other writers right. sitting out in their fields with their sheep, uh, right. uh, writing, you know, pouring out their feelings. They are that, but right. they have structure and intention. Yeah, they're formal poetry, form. formal Hebrew and, oh, poetry. Oh, by the way, they're written explicitly for corporate worship. Huh. They are literally prayers that person A wrote for person B to read and in fact sing. Hmm. Um, this, is, this is the history Right. Of, of the church. And it's, it's only in a weird uh, quirk of history that most of American Christianity is either directly descended or at least heavily influenced by uh, heretical post-Reformation ideas. Right. I mean, you were settled by all the heretics. Hmm. The story I learned growing up was that America was the history of religious freedom and people coming here for religious freedom. And that was true. But the people who wanted religious freedom were mostly the people with weird ideas. Right. right. Um, And next thing we know, fast forward 400 years, 
And, and we have all of these people who have had terrible uh, experiences. I don't understand where, where my creative gift connects to my faith. Right. And this is the problem. So how, how is Anselm and how do you, you know, and beyond Anselm, uh, you know, at, at, what is the, how, what's the reconnection point for that? What is it that we do, the knowledge and the action that we unify to bring those two things, which I, you and I and our listeners are so excited about, but right, we want this thoughtful, creative Christian people. How do we do that? Well, some of it's certainly just putting people in a room together. Yep. Um, you know, the, the, good, the, the number of times where, where, where you and I have, have done something incredible, just not because we did anything special, but because two people or 200 people were in a room together. Right. Um, Singing together and praying together and reading poetry together and... Or having that you two, I thought I was the only one conversation. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, our, our annual conference, I think, is a great um, embodiment of this because uh, as it's at the end of every April and we call it uh, the Imagination Redeemed Conference. And it's, it's, it's deeply intentional with... Uh, the formal learning part, hmm. there's a lot of lecture time, a lot of discussion time. Um, we are trying very intentionally to look at the role that art has played in different facets of the operation of the church and making them work better. Um, and also at looking at those areas of the life of the church and how they need art in, in specific kinds of ways uh, to function well. Uh, that's there. But on the other hand, we also simply have 200 people in the same building for an entire weekend, meeting each other, deepening a relationship, continuing a conversation, starting a conversation. And so much of what we've accomplished over the last uh, three years since we started having this conference each year has come out of a couple of people just sparking an idea together just because they were in a room. Right. Right. Well, I like that you're saying that. I think that's very relevant um, at Forma, where explore, we explore classical thought for contemporary culture. And I like what you're saying, kind of the, the idea of the historical grounding of something like the Anselm Society. Um, you know, many of us are classical Christian educators and writers, you know, people who are interested, if not overtly obsessed <laughs> with the idea of passing down the great tradition of ideas and creation and art from one generation to another in a culture that seems uh, not only uninterested in the endeavor, but frankly hostile to that. Right. Um, so artists, Christian classical thinkers, educators, writers, I, I think that, these spheres overlap so much. Like, I mean, it's like peanut butter and jelly, like people, these people, people, I guess we belong together doing this. Right. Um, and so I love that there's a historical grounding with the Anselm society society. It's not just like go out and write a Christian poem because the church needs it today, which is certainly true, but we're also part of an unfolding tradition. Right. So how does a Renaissance of the Christian imagination, I want to talk to you about that. How does that fit with a, with classical sensibilities? You know, what place does old and new art hold for, you know, people who are in this endeavor? 
Well, I think the enemy here is chronological snobbery. No, that's good. Right? I mean, which, which if you've encountered it through, say, C.S. Lewis, uh, the the way that you've encountered it is, well, chronological snobbery is people who value the present over the past, um, which if you step outside the, 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 the well-hardened concrete of modernity um, hmm. that we live in um, that has just sort of set our minds working certain ways and having certain assumptions, if you step outside that for a moment, you realize how stupid that is. I mean, uh, mind-blowingly stupid. You've got all of human history before you. You've got goodness how many, knows how many years of human history ahead of you. And out of all that, you're going to say, ah, this five-minute stretch, <laughs> I am so much smarter than both those other time periods. I'm so much smarter than, you know, forget that, you know, you're, you're saying you're smarter than you were five minutes ago and smarter than you will be five minutes from now. Right. And oh, by the way, everyone else. And oh, by the way, for all time. But there's another, there's a flip side to this. Absolutely. You can have chronological snobbery and a love of the past. Sure. Um, and which I'm biased towards. Me too. Um, but it, it, it can work that way as well. And, and I think you see this in churches a lot of the time where there's typically a split between quote-unquote traditional churches and quote-unquote contemporary churches. I would Mm. posit that the vast majority of the time when you encounter a church that says they are traditional, they're not traditional. They are reenacting a tradition that was popular. Maybe it was a thousand years ago. Maybe it was 500 years ago. More likely it was when they were 20. Um, most of the churches that say, oh, I love this kind of music. I love hymns. I love they're, they're not traditional. It's just what they liked when they were 20. Right. Just um, when they started paying attention, they found something they liked. And then yes, they want to keep doing years, that. Yeah. People who are 20 now, now they're not really the problem. The people who, who, who invented the worship that we associate with 20 somethings now are actually 60 now. But, right. uh, but broadly speaking, I think the people who, who right now like what we call contemporary worship will be, in, in 40 years, the ones calling themselves traditional. Hmm. And the real, the real point with a real, a real classical education, a real uh, classical approach to anything is the notion of tradition as something living. Right. You have had something that is passed down to you and you are trying to pass it down, not as this, ooh, it's really fragile, don't break it sort of thing. Don't wow. touch it, don't breathe on it. But in the sense of it was, it was given to me, I'm supposed to live into it. And in, by by adding myself to it, by contributing to it, by taking this organism and adding my life to it, I can pass it down not merely the same as I found it, but better than I found it. Right. And that might mean no change whatsoever. And that might mean needing to, needing to know when to shut up and when to not mess with it. But it might need, mean knowing it so well that you know how it can how it can improve. Right. That is great. That's really good. I thank you for that. I think that's going to be really relevant for a lot of um, us trying to f- walk that line, right? Do I have to just love, you know, for for class, for Christian classical uh, thinkers and educators and writers and, um, you know, a lot, of, as you pointed out, there's a lot of this reverse chronicle snobbery too. Like I, I have to like that just because it's old, mm-hmm. right? So, um, but if you think about, to, to your point, if you're, um, if we, if we look at it in terms of how has this endured, why is this so enduring? It's not just because it's old, no, right? You're it's, reading the, you're reading yes. the, the, the top 40 
from yes. what? Exactly. Well, and there's something about it. It lasts because there's something about it that accesses our humanity, uh, our being in the world and points us towards transcendence and towards, um, uh, towards the mysteries of being human and the mm-hmm. mystery of God. And, and of, of course we, can contribute to that conversation. I love that idea of, you know, you don't, don't want to treat it as though it's fragile, right? It is not fragile. Shakespeare has been Shakespeare forever and he's going to continue to be. The question is not, you know, is, is it going to be lost? I'm so fearful. It's, let me enter into it because it's so strong and robust and it has something to offer to this generation. And as you said, we might be able to remake it also into something else, which I think is wonderful. So you talk a lot about sacred art and common art. Um, And I really like that distinction and how they interweave. So briefly, we have just a few more minutes. Can you tell me about what you mean by those distinctions? You're going to hand me that and tell me to be I know, I know. Well, you've got like 12 (laughs) minutes. So we can definitely dig into that. <laughs> um, so, so the 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 distinction, and and I don't know if I don't I don't think I've ever encountered those two terms paired exactly that way. But mm-hmm. um, it was just a, a a pairing of of, of some words that it I was thought a was synthesis to that you you delved into the tradition and you came up with something exactly. creative. I, I love that. Way there you go. Well, There's well, a it's yeah. one of those things where, like, I, I've got a. Um, I've got a book on theological aesthetics that's just a, a, a compendium that uh, a scholar did of a whole bunch of writings from the church fathers onward on um, beauty. I mean, theological writings related to beauty. And what you find is there's almost nothing until mm. really, really recently because no one bothered. Huh. No one had to convince you that beauty mattered. Similarly, um, nobody really bothered articulating the difference between sacred art and common art because it was assumed every culture everywhere has these two categories. You've got art that is, that is basically made for the gods mm-hmm. and it, it's over here. And we develop these specific forms for it because we think it deserves our best and we're going to put our brightest people on it. Um, and, and it's going to be not just, not just the best, but also just this sense of um, very, very intentional in, what's done and how it's done and why it's done. And then outside you have this other category, which is everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, the, and the Greeks had common art and the Romans had common art and the Chinese had common art and pick your favorite time and place. And they have these two categories. So you've got shepherds in the field with their pipes, writing songs to be danced to at the you know, pub that night or something there, you know, I I love it when people act as though uh, there was a time in history when people um, sang sacred music for fun uh, (laughs) and, oh, that was their music of entertainment. And now we're going to sing Chris Tom. No, (laughs) no, they had popular music. Read Prosser. They told gross stories. They told jokes. They sang weird songs. They bounced around and made fools of themselves just like everybody else. But these having these categories um, allows you to start to think about uh, what you do and why you do it in a right. much more intentional way. Right. What is it about the kinds of art that we devote to corporate worship that both teaches us things about God and forms us into the kind of people who long after the need for fighting poverty is gone, long after the need 
for searching for community is gone, long after the need for evangelism is gone, will be worshiping in the throne room of God for all eternity. Hmm. And then on the flip side, let's not put... Let's, let's not take the, the Christian singer-songwriter and say, ah, you must write praise songs hmm. or it's not for God. Hmm. You must, to the novelist, you must have a conversion story or you're not writing Christian fiction. Hmm. No, you've got categories, you've got uh, distinctions and you've got roles to play in the kingdom of God. I mean, to, to make my uh, long answer just ever so slightly longer, um, John Skillen at Gordon College uh, has a, a further twist on this that I think is instructive. He breaks it up into sacred art, sacred theater in the church, and sacred theater in the public square. Hmm. Where category one is about what we talked about, sacred art. Category two is about the life of the church outside of Sunday morning. So hmm. it's about catechesis. It's about spiritual formation. How do we grow? How do we learn who we are? How do we pass this on to our children? Uh, how do we celebrate? way better than everybody around us right. because we've got a joy that nobody else has. Right. Um, and then category three is stuff that might be, might not even be explicitly Christian, right? It might, it might just be, uh, as Flannery O'Connor put it, Christ haunted. Or was that Walker Percy have this horrible moment? Of- no, it's, it is O'Connor. You're exactly okay, good. Right. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, but he does it too. So fair question. <laughs> Christ haunted, right? And, and you've got Lord of the Rings, right? Which is not a, it's, it wasn't written for, spiritual formation on us on adult education on Sunday morning at church. It wasn't written for a Christian audience, but my goodness, is there a, you know, it's hard to find a more Christian work of fiction right. that never mentions Christ. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's great. So how do we cultivate a love and a knowledge of, of these categories? Is it, um, you know, through our worship and at home, like how do we, you know, that could be maybe a little daunting to people. Whoa. Um, so um, kind of put some embodiments on that, put some legs on that. How do we do that in our homes and in our lives? I mean, as one of the challenges is just further reading. Where, sure. do, you, where do you start with this? Um, because on some level, you just have to dig into these categories a little bit more. And, and there aren't people writing in exactly these categories. But... Um, one, one author that I like on this is, is Alexander Schmemann and mm. The Life of the World because because he talks Fabulous about the, the liturgy on uh, a Sunday morning or, or any other time when you're doing corporate worship um, and how it bleeds, the, 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 the uppercase L liturgy uh, bleeds into the lowercase L liturgy of your life. And the rest of the week, you could be living a liturgy or according to a rhythm, a set of habits that is defined by the world. It's defined by the fact that you're busy, that you're stressed, that you're sitting in gridlock, that you check Facebook a thousand times a day. Um, or uh, you could be doing worship so well and connecting it to the rest of your life in so, uh, so well um, that you do them both like a Christian. Hmm. recognizably like a Christian. Hmm. Um, so that's a, a helpful short book for starting to think about those categories, even though it doesn't talk about those categories exactly that way. Another thing though, is I think the church needs to take a lead on this, hmm. uh, which means uh, many pastors need to dive more into the arts than seminary ever asked them to do. Um, but there, my experience has been at most churches, there's somebody who could teach a class on this or who could take the lead on this if um, somebody gave them a megaphone or 
or if they did what everybody who wants to start something new at church should do, which is get the senior pastor sold on it and then saying, and then say, I will make it happen. Hmm. Um, so in my church, for example, uh, we're trying to, um, lead by example a little bit and, um, putting, we're, we're putting a little bit more effort than a lot of churches do into, uh, delving into the Christian sacred music tradition. Right. Um, and letting that spill into how we do music on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, we're developing some very, very easy, low-hanging fruit type ministries to artists and through artists that allow people to experience uh, art, stories, poems, paintings, songs, and so on um, at church, but not in church. Mm. Um, you know, if you've got a fellowship hall or something, what's stopping you from... Uh, having a great local band of Christian artists have live music at your next potluck or what's stopping you from the fact that when Lent is coming up, um, contacting the surrounding community and saying, Hey, here's a little prompt, a little theme create out of that theme. And we'll, you know, unless it's, unless what you write is, or, or what you create is, is going to traumatize the children forever. We'll hang it on the wall and we'll talk about it. Right. That's great. Well, and I think along with that is there's so much that we can do um, at home with our families, Um, just reading to our kids and listening to good music and uh, connect. I mean, this is one of those cases in which technology is doing something good, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Something like uh, the daily poem and these podcasts, these things that, uh, that, that we can access with, you know, the demon device in our hands that we're always condemning in the classical world. This is also, there's, this is also a conduit for the great tradition in our homes, in our cars, um, in conversations we have, um, you know, Shakespeare reading nights when you can download the play for free, things like that. Um, so between the... Oh, can we talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> Because the listeners should know. I mean, Heidi helped organize this Shakespeare night uh, with, with Anson. We had, I, I don't I think we capped it at 40 people because mm-hmm. it was in someone's house and, you know, space. Um, right. But, um, but I mean, we had 10-year-olds there. Yeah. And we had 60, 70-year-olds there. And, and, and in, I don't know, 20 minutes, you demystified Shakespeare. And then you handed half the group the last scene from Hamlet and the other half of the group, the last scene from Midsummer Night's Dream. And you said, go and do. Yeah. And we had people who have theoretically no business understanding Shakespeare or theoretically no business appreciating Shakespeare, having a ball Mm -hmm. performing Shakespeare together. Right. And I had at least half a dozen people who I never would have expected it leaving that event saying, can we do just this? all the time. Can we do this every month? Well, again, that goes, that goes to the idea of art. The great art of the great tradition is it is not, um, you know, mysterious dark cloud. It's, it's something accessible. That's why it's so enduring. Right. And when Christians own that as our heritage, to pass on to our kids and to love in our own souls and to bring into the church, to be embraced by a worshiping community uh, at church and even in church sometimes. Mm-hmm. That is the, f- 
that that has a major role in spiritual formation and in loving God and loving his world. Um, and that's what we do. I, 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 to be honest, I don't see a, a giant difference between education and discipleship. I think they're the same thing. So, uh, but the categories, like you pointed out, between sacred art and common art are really useful in terms of knowing what it is we're forming, right? Are we forming a worshiping organ that needs to be entirely devoted in this moment to the king, the heavenly kingdom? Um, or are we also embracing, you know, kind of that, that idea of the, the great tradition of human creation? Like that, those, yeah. there are two different kinds of formation, but they both are spiritual formation. Right. So, or one way I, th- I found that's helpful to, to look at it for me is, is on the one hand, so Sunday morning worship is the dress rehearsal for what you're going to do. Uh, for so, so on some level, and this is, this is why we care about quality with what we do on a Sunday morning. This is why everyone cares about quality, whatever they mean by quality right. with what they do on a Sunday morning, because they know it's important. And on some level, it's aspiring to the ideal mm. and, and you're, you're basically going into a room for an hour or two and pretending you're in heaven. Right. And hmm. uh, there's something real happening as well, <laughs> but, 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 but that's what you're doing to get there, to have that experience. And, but then you walk out and, and, and you've, you've spent this time remembering who you are, reminding yourself why you exist, encountering the living God. And then you go out into the world that is redeemed, but still broken. Hmm. And you have to have art forms that really powerfully form you in that first context. But then you've also got to have art forms that go out into the darkness with you. Right. And help you to grapple with it. Yes. Yes. That is so important. So good. So as we, uh, as we close down, I really want to delve into that. But since we don't have six hours to talk, at least on this podcast, at maybe over coffee sometime, mm-hmm. um, uh, so as we wind down our conversation, tell tell us what are you what are you reading right now? What art sacred and common are you experiencing personally right now? Ooh, um, I'm reading a um, a new um, modern English translation of um, the first book of Hooker's Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity um, put out by my friends at the Davenant Institute. They're doing just incredible work taking some of these works that were written in older forms of English and therefore are read much less than works that were written at the same time in other languages and which have subsequently been translated as a result. I've Um, never read Hooker, but I have heard that he is... uh, one of the okay. greatest, what is it, homileticians? Mm-hmm. Some of the greatest homiletics in the history of oh, the Oh, he's hilarious. Huh. Oh, my goodness. He, he, if he had a Twitter account, my <laughs> goodness. He has got this way of talking where he'll just repeat the other side's argument and string them along and string them along and string them along. And, and once he set them up and has them exactly where he wants them, he just drops the floor from underneath them and makes makes them look like utter fools and just laughs at them about it. <laughs> um, That's great. But, um, yeah, so he's he's always uh, always fun to read in a, a modern translation because he's got so much to talk about um, in a world where a lot of us are used to encountering Christ in a very individualistic way, which was a very big thing among some of the uh, Protestant heretics at the time. Hmm. Um, and I'm a Protestant, so I say Protestant heretic as a distinct thing, by the way. Right, uh-huh. right. Yes. Appreciate <laughs> clarifying. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm reading that. Um, 
uh, as as you know, Heidi, I'm a huge um, Inward Tolls fan. So uh huh. Yeah, we both read, are. That's yeah, right. So having read Gentlemen in Moscow last year and reading Rules of Civility now, I still haven't read that yet. It's on my list, but slowly because yeah. every chapter is just so freaking delightful. Huh. It's every single chapter is so learned. I mean, you want to talk about continuing a tradition? You can't read this guy's stuff and fail to notice that he just, he knows. And in the case of his Russian novel, he knows Russian literature like the back of his hand. In mm. the case of Rules of Civility, which is set in New York in the 30s, I'm blanking out. It might be a little later than that. But and, but anyway, early to mid 20th century. Uh, there, I mean, he knows the the authors of the time, the poets of the time, the songwriters of the time. And he talks about them like he just finished hanging out with them. <laughs> Perfect. Well, those are some, those are some things our listeners, some books our listeners can pick up if you want to read, you know, homilies or a really, really good contemporary novel. So thank you, Brian. And thank you so much for being here with me on the podcast. This has been pure delight. Um, And thank you uh, from me, from Forma, from our listeners for all that you're doing to foster a renaissance of the Christian imagination in this cultural moment. We certainly need it. So for our listeners who want more, where can they find you in the Anselm Society? That's anselmsociety.org. And if you'd like to join us in Colorado in person at the end of April at the Imagination Redeemed Conference, we do have a few tickets left and you can get those either through anselmsociety.org or the direct conference link, which is imaginationredeemed.com. I can't wait for that. I'm super excited. I can't wait for your talk. Yeah. Oh, well, I am excited about that too. So, well, thank you so much. And uh, don't forget that Forma Journal is shipping any day now. So become a subscriber today. We have a luminous lineup of interviews, essays, poetry, and more in the winter issue. Um, Subscribers already have access to the digital edition on formajournal.com. And we have gotten some feedback already, so it seems to be resonating with our readers. So you don't want to miss out. Become a subscriber today. So with that, it is time to say goodbye. Until next time, uh, from Brian Brown and all of us at Forma, I'm Heidi White. Au revoir. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.